Well, um, today we are going to do our second to last message on this uh, little uh, series on discipleship. We're talking about what a disciple is. And if you look at the passages where Jesus talks about being a follower of his um, and kind of compile it into a sentence, this is what we came up with, this is what I came up with. What's a disciple? Well, a disciple is a born-again, baptized follower of Jesus. And what does he or she do? That loves believers, we talked about that last week, neighbors, you go, what's the difference between a believer and a neighbor? Well, a believer would be a fellow believer who has been born again. It's your fellow believers at your church and other believers, okay? A neighbor would be a broader term. That would be everybody, okay? So we're going to segment it into believers who get special love (laughs) and neighbors who would be primarily unbelievers. You're to love them too. And you're to love the Lord with all your heart. And that seems to be a pretty comprehensive definition. So last week's message was kind of a challenge for those who are not that comfortable getting involved in church. You really can't love fellow believers unless you're involved. Okay, So if you missed that, listen to that message. This week is going to be more of a challenge for those who are maybe a little too comfortable only being involved in church, but are kind of hiding out from the world. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us look at the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a lot to say about uh, how we are to act toward our neighbor. And um, four key words we're going to focus on. First of all, the word salt, then the word light, then the word prayer, then the word greet. And hopefully we'll learn what our attitude is to be toward our neighbor. So let's talk about salt, first of all. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you, believers, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, um, there's a bit of a debate over what does being salt mean? And the the two primary things that get debated are this. Um, Some would say the primary use of salt back in the first century was to be used as a preservative. So you would go to the meat market. There was a, a butchered goat or bull, you get your slab of, of meat, you'd cook some for that night, but then you didn't have a refrigerator, so you use salt, you would rub salt into the meat, and it would preserve it from rotting. So s- salt would be a preservative. 
Um, others would say, well, the, the main use of salt back then is the same reason we use it today for your water softener. No, for your, <laughs> uh, for flavor. You ever eat eggs without salt? It's just not right. Do any of you put salt on watermelon? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's good. Try it. Um, so the ESV kind of goes with that idea, that it's a flavor enhancer. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? But whatever the main meaning is, whether it's a preservative or a flavor enhancer, here's the main thing I want us to understand. Salt does no good in the shaker. Especially if you are the salt of the earth. The, the analogy makes no sense if we're always clustered together, hanging out in the church. Now, last week we talked about it. It's important that that we get involved with one another more than just Sunday morning, that we are actually loving one another. And some people go, yes, I love that. I love Christians. I want to hang out with Christians. I want to be a full-time Christian with nothing but Christians. Now you got to get out of the salt shaker and get on the meat. Get on the watermelon. Okay? Um, in fact, we're useless if we're not making contact with the world, okay? Now, some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, I've always been taught the world is evil. And what about 2 Corinthians 6.17, which says, come out from their midst and be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. Well, here's where you have to do what is called systematic theology. You have to take 2 Corinthians 6 and the analogy with salt, and, and you have to say, how do you fit them together? And then you, you, one thing you want to do is say, what did Jesus do? Now, you remember the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son? He told those parables to make a point. That God loves the lost, and he, his heart breaks over the lost. Why did he tell that? Because he was being criticized by religious people for eating with sinners and tax collectors. So the religious people criticized Jesus for being salt making contact with the world. Oh, a holy man would be separate. But that's not the example he gives us. So when you combine 2 Corinthians 6 with the salt and the illustration of Jesus, you have to conclude that come out and be separate can't primarily be talking about physical separation, it has to be talking about influential separation. In other words, you need to ask this question. 
as I am salt in the world, who is influencing whom more? And if I'm being tempted and dragged into sin, then separate. Maybe even physically, separate. And then when you're separating, though, and you go, I really like it here in the wonderland of the church where everybody loves everybody and there's never a problem and everybody gets along. I don't want to go back to the world. No, no, no. You need to go back to the world, but not to be influenced by the world, but to be salt, having an impact upon the world. Let me, uh, let me give you an example that's really challenged me, okay? Um, so you might know my wife works at Moody Bible Institute, okay? And um, we know some, uh, some girls who, and we know them very well, who go to Moody, but they have decided not to live on campus. In fact, they've decided to live in a very dangerous neighborhood on the south side of Chicago where there's lots of gang warfare. They live in a dumpy apartment. And they are purposely doing this to befriend the prostitutes on the south side of Chicago. And just to throw this in there, about 25% of them are transvestites. Not the girls, the, the prostitutes are transvestites. Okay? Almost got in trouble there. Um, now, what if, to bring it home, what if your daughter, your sweet precious daughter came to you and said, I want to go to Moody Bible Institute. And you go, yes. She's going to find a Christian husband. Probably a pastor. And everything we know about pastors is they're wonderful. <laughs> and then one day she comes home and she says, um, Mom and Dad, I'm going to move off campus. And you go, oh, good. You know, there's some really nice places in Chicago. Now, we're moving to, and she names this neighborhood, and you Google it, and you look at all the crime, and you look at the prostitution, and you go, you're going to move there? You see all the prostitutes? Yeah, we would like to be involved in a ministry that loves these women. And we don't think we can do that with a hit-and-run approach where we zoom in and then pull. We actually want to live amongst them. So I, I raise that illustration not to say we all need to do that. But I want to ask the question, what controls you more? Your need for safety or your need to fulfill the Great Commission? Right. What's your first visceral emotional response to that? Is it <gasps> safety? I'm all for safety. I'm all for smart. 
But what about the Great Commission? How can that illustration of real-life girls that we know, girls who've actually been to this church, how does that challenge us in thinking about being salt? It can be safe in the shaker, but we're meant for greater things. Okay? Let me give you a second illustration. Light. Jesus said this, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So here again we're talking about our purpose is not to be hidden, but to shine in the darkness. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light, well, what is our light? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Oh, so light is good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here again, get out from the bushel. Get out in the darkness and let your light shine. Okay, what's our light? Good works. Right. Uh, let me let me give you some illustrations of of how this can look. I knew a pastor once, and um, he told me his testimony. And his story went like this: He uh, was in high school, and he and a bunch of friends uh, had a, a rundown car, and they drove it to a mall one day, and uh, they went shopping. They came out. And it was a frigid, cold Chicago day with the wind chills below zero. And uh, they went out to start the car. It didn't start. And uh, they tried to jump it, and they couldn't jump. And uh, so they, they were stranded. And there was a man coming out to his car, and he noticed that they were in trouble. And he goes, oh, I have some tools in the, the back of my car. And he took out his tools. And it was just a raw, freezing day. And he crawled under the car. And he's got his wrenches. And he's under there for quite some time. And uh, he comes out and he goes, you know, it's really cold out here. Why don't you guys go stand in the store? No need for you to walk. And they're like, really? Yeah, go ahead. And he spent, I don't know how long, but uh, nearly froze his hands off, he said. And then they came out. And this, this guy, this high school student, was not a believer at the time, but the man fixed the car, and he, the, the car owner, said to him, um, what do we owe you? And the man said, oh, nothing, don't worry about it. And the kid's mouth kind of dropped open, and he just said, why? And the man just said three words and drove away. He said, I'm a Christian. He didn't preach at him. He didn't drop the four spiritual laws on him. He didn't bang him with the Bible. He just said, I'm a Christian. And that got this young fellow thinking, what's a Christian? There's a, there's a whole other creature out there that I'm not aware of. And that got him thinking about what is Christianity and reading his Bible, and now he is a pastor. Because some man on a cold, frigid day in a a mall let his light shine in an act of kindness. Um, You know, a couple months ago, we did the work project, 
uh, where a bunch of people on Saturday morning got together and we did some things in the in the community. We uh, uh, helped with Beautiful You and and uh, moved. Uh, f- there was a garage full of stuff and we moved it and set up shelves and stuff. And then there was the food pantry. Okay, some of you. Uh, looked at the dates on cans and cleaned and, and worked with the food pantry. And then there was a, a family. Um, how many of you were with Pastor Todd working with that family? Okay, there was a family that um, they, I guess you, you did, sto- you moved some stones and yard work, and it was kind of rainy and cold out. And honestly, how many of you would go, did that do any good? Did that make an impact on, on anybody? Was it a wasted Saturday? Well, I think God knew that we were going to do this sermon today, so he had me go to my favorite clothing store, Sam's Club, today, or, or it was this week, this last week. And I did get the hot dog combo. Best deal in town. $1.50, 100% beef. <laughs> Parts of it. (laughs) You don't want to know the full ingredients. (laughs) Don't read that, okay? Um, So here's here's my routine at Sam's. I get my stuff in my my cart, and then, you know, you do the, the, you scan the aisles, like, which one's the shortest? And most of the time now, I go to this this self-checkout, because they have this little ray gun, it's really fun. Um... But they were, they were all full, so I'm like, all right, oh, there's one. There was a, a, a checkout aisle with an actual human behind it, and I was going for that, and then there was another one where a lady said, come on over here. So I went over there, and I gave her my Sam's card, and she ran it through. We have a Valleybrook card, and she goes, oh, Valleybrook, I know about that church. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> She goes, no, they're really nice. They all came over one day and did yard work in my yard and redid the stones. And I didn't tell her I was a pastor. That would freak her out. But I said, yeah, they really are a great bunch of people. Love to have you come. And she goes, I work most, most Sundays. But thank you so much. Good job. Good job. That's what we're talking about here. Letting your light shine before the world so they can say, wow, there must be a God. Why why would people give up a Saturday to help somebody out of the blue? Now, let me give you a little history here of, it's called the liberal fundamentalist controversy. The early part of this century um, or this last century, early part of this century would be just like a few years ago, but early part of the 1900s, um, theology, a lot of theologians went liberal. What do we mean by that? Well, as the world became more and more scientifically advanced, the world found less and less of a need for a supernatural explanation of things. Okay? We know how weather works. We know how satellites work. We know how, you know, so we're figuring stuff out. 
And they thought if there's less and less need to attribute things to the supernatural. In fact, a number of theologians were almost embarrassed by anything that the Bible had to say about the supernatural. But they wanted to retain the shell of Christianity. So they said the heart of Christianity is music. That's Barb. Okay. Slam it to the ground. Boom. Later, later on, I'm going to talk about interruptions, and it's going to be funny. All right, so <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> Give me that phone, Barb. No. <laughs> okay, so uh, where were we? Oh, we were, uh, oh, so the liberals said, Let's retain Christianity, but we're embarrassed about the whole supernatural thing, Jesus walking on water and the Red Sea party. Come on, that didn't really happen. Those are just kind of myths to teach a story. But the real heart of Christianity is love your neighbor. So in essence, uh, liberal Christianity has become social action divorced from the gospel. You know, dig wells, build hospitals, clothe the poor, and that has become the gospel. Do good for people. Okay? Now, the fundamentalists, now back in the early part of this, the first part of the century, fundamentalist was not a negative term. It it meant those who believed that the Bible was true. They held to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. They held to the reality of miracles, the virgin birth of Jesus, the, the blood atonement of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words, um, they held to the core of gospel truth. Okay, So, the, uh, the fundamentalists reacted to the liberals by saying, what good is it to do good works if people are going to die and go to hell? And the liberals came back and said, you don't believe in hell, do you? And the fundamentalists said, well, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? And the liberals said, well, whatever the reason was, it wasn't to appease the wrath of God because God is love. There is a theologian named Richard Niebuhr who said this. This is, sums up liberal Christianity. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Okay? Now, so that was the, the, the tension between these two groups. Now, fundamentalists rightly condemned the social gospel as a denial of the true gospel. But many of them overreacted by saying, we're just going to preach the gospel, no social action. In fact, we're going to be suspicious of anybody who does any kind of social action. So to be really simplistic, you could say, Liberals 
liberal Christians do good works without the gospel. Fundamentalists preach the gospel without good works. But the Bible would say, don't forsake the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the gospel, or Jesus would say, and let your light shine before men so they can see your difference and praise your Father in heaven. So here's a question for connection time. Maybe without even knowing it, you've been influenced by one side or the other. Which one do you lean more toward? Good works without the gospel or the gospel without good works? Okay. Now, let's talk about, and by the way, let me just say this. Yes, good works can be go out and do stuff, but good works would also include your character, the fruit of the Spirit, how you treat people. And it starts in your own family. How you treat your own family. So don't hear, well, I need to rush out and be visible and do all kinds of good works, and I treat my family like garbage. Right? That's where letting your light shine begins. Start with your wife or your husband and your kids, and then your neighbors next door, and then your co-workers at work, and uh, that's how we let our light shine. Now, let me move on and talk about heart issues. Jesus says that you're to pray for not just your neighbor, but your enemy. Okay, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, um, you read this and you go, wow, that is asking an awful lot. Is this, is this hyperbole? You know, there is hyperbole in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And we know that's an exaggeration. Maybe Jesus is exaggerating here, and he doesn't really expect us to pray for those who hurt us. Well, again, we need to ask, what did he actually live? Luke 23, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, so he's praying, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, um, you go, well, that's not fair using Jesus as an example. He's God. Can you really expect ordinary people to live this way? Well, here's Stephen in Acts 7. He's preaching, and the Pharisees become furious, 
And it says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He prays for his persecutors while the stones are hitting him. So it is possible to live this way. Now, what's the key to loving not just your neighbor, but those who persecute you? Let's go back to Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ah, there's the key. Now, don't misunderstand this. This can't mean their ignorance makes them innocent. Otherwise, why does he forgive them? If they're, if they're innocent because they don't know what they do, why the need to forgive them? So they're guilty. It must mean their sinfulness has blinded them to the gravity of their sin. You know, when I was an unbeliever, I knew using Jesus' name as a swear word was a sin. It was wrong. But I didn't really know how blasphemous it was. I didn't know that it would really send me to hell. I kind of knew there was a hell. I didn't really know that I was going there. So my ignorance, it didn't relieve me of my responsibility, but it blinded me to the gravity of my sin. Now, knowing that the unsaved world, even those who hurt you and slander you and persecute you, knowing that they're blind and dead to spiritual realities, should produce in us a degree of compassion and pity. I'll give you a a Josh story, okay? Josh is like, oh no, here we go. So Josh, when he was in like third grade, uh, there was a kid in his class, let's just call him... Bobby, Bobby, okay. And Bobby was a special needs student and um, intellectually was not altogether there, okay. But Josh is friends with everybody, okay. And um, so one day Josh comes home from school and he's kind of upset. And I go, Josh, what's the matter? He goes, I'm really mad at these kids. I go, Why? Well, I was out on the playground, and they told Bobby to go flying across the playground and tackle me, and he did. Now, (laughs) remember that? (laughs) And I am perplexed. I'm like, Josh... 
why are you upset with the kids who told him and not upset with Bobby? And he goes, oh, Bobby, he doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Unbelievers are blind and deaf and dumb, dead in their sin. They don't know what they're doing. They're 100% accountable. But they don't get it. So we need to have a love and a compassion and a pity for them. So here's a, here's a connection time question. Can you tell of a time when, from all earthly perspective, you should have been upset with somebody who hurt you, but God gave you a supernatural compassion for your enemy? You know, you know what I think might bring revival? Praying, not for the unbeliever, I'll do that, but praying for us that we would really love our neighbors. Okay? One last thing. Greet. Greeting. Jesus says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Then he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I find this interesting. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 ends with the perfect standard. Be perfect. And, and the chapter has some pretty impossible things in it, like don't just don't commit adultery, but if you lust, you've committed adultery. Don't just don't murder, but if you're angry, you've committed murder. Love your enemy and pray for them. But why does he end on this one? Greet everybody. Doesn't seem that hard, does it? Do you do it? You see, by saying don't just greet your brothers or people you like, but greet everyone, what he's calling for here is not just an act, but an attitude. An attitude that desires to extend kindness and openness and blessing to all others, as opposed to an attitude of, closedness, self-absorption in your own little world, sourness. You know, some Christians wonder why they're not better at evangelism. They're like, do I need to listen to that Ray Comfort series again? You know, do I, should, I, should I work on my illustration explaining propitiatory sacrifice again? How about you just smile? Right? As, as Howard Hendricks used to say, he goes, you know, so many Christians look like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. <laughs> or like the, uh, that one country gospel guy came to our church once and he's clapping and stomping. He goes, how many of you all know the love of the Lord? How many of you know the joy of the Lord? And everybody raised their hand. He goes, you might want to tell your face. 
We just need to have a genuine attitude of kindness and blessing to others. It does take effort to not be self-absorbed. It takes effort to say, when I am out in the world, I am going to extend kindness and blessing and friendliness to everyone. There's a guy on the radio, his name is Dennis Prager, and he has one hour a week called the Happiness Hour. And, and he says that not being happy is a sin. Well, that's inauthentic. He says, well, deodorant's inauthentic. Right? Our attitude of love should be when I show up to church to cut my lawn, to go to work while driving on Route 88 during rush hour, right attitude of blessing not self-absorption and i i have a right to be in this lane now i'm stepping on toes right you know the the bible actually has a term for this attitude it's called hospitality okay um got questions. I looked up hospitality. They define it this way. Hospitality can be defined as the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated hospitality literally means love of strangers. Philo, xenos. Philos is love. Xenos is not zenies. <laughs> It's the love of zinis, right? <laughs> um, it, it means you're to have a, a heart of wanting to bless, yes, everyone. Okay? So here in uh, 1 Timothy, uh, an overseer, an elder, a pastor is supposed to be hospitable. In Hebrews it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, so we've got to have a lot of people over to our house. Well, that's, a, that's an American form of hospitality, but it's first an attitude, an attitude of friendliness. First uh, Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know, I, I was going to work in the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, the story Jesus tells of the guy he's robbed and he's left bleeding and he's laying in the ditch, and the two religious guys walk around him. But the, the Samaritan picks him up, carries him to the Holiday Inn Express, pays his bill for several days, uh, bandages his wounds, So I I was going to mention that, but the problem that many Christians have is not that that we wouldn't be a neighbor in a crisis. I mean, if you're walking down the road and you find somebody bleeding, you would at least stop and call 911, wouldn't you? Okay. 
Our problem in many cases is that we're just not that friendly in ordinary life. We're inward many times and not outward. And I'm not talking, you know, some people want to justify it and say, well, my personality, I'm more of an introvert. I'm not talking personality here. I'm talking within your zone of how God created you. Are you putting forth the energy and the effort to bless people, to welcome people, and not making them feel unwelcomed in your circle? Okay. So a, a, a test here is how do you react when people interrupt you. Sorry, Barb. Because I, I, think, I think our true character comes out when we're in our zone, we're doing it, and then we get interrupted. So once again, let me end with this. How did Jesus react to interruptions? You could almost say the Gospels are an account of Jesus being interrupted full time. Right? When he's on his way to the cross, and some parents come up and say, Bless our babies, bless our babies. And the disciples are like, Get out of here. You don't have time for those babies. And Jesus says, Give me those babies. And he blesses them. And I always say he did the got your nose thing. And he probably took their nose off because he could do that kind of thing. Right? <laughs> I have to do it with the thumb. He's like, yeah, I got it. I'm your creator. Right? One day he's teaching, probably in Peter's house in Capernaum. And as he's teaching, all of a sudden the roof opens and a paralytic comes down. What does he do? Does he get mad? I don't have time for paralytic. He heals him. Right? He's teaching, and a panicked father comes up named Jairus. He says, my daughter's dying. Says, Let's go heal her. He goes, and on the way, crowd's pushing him. He goes, whoa, whoa. Who touched me? And there was a woman who touched him. She'd been bleeding all her life, and he heals her. He gets in a boat, he gets out of the boat, they're pulling the boat on shore, and up runs a naked, chain-chewing man in a graveyard full of 2,000 demons. You talk about an interruption. Right? He's teaching, rich young ruler, runs up, falls on his knees, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He turns it into a lesson. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to him at night. And interrupts him. He's teaching in a synagogue. And the Pharisees drag in a woman caught in adultery. Interrupting him. I think this is just an example of the attitude of kindness, of, of welcoming, of being friendly, of wanting to bless. Not being self-absorbed. You know... I would have to say some of you moms have been a great illustration to me. I mean, I see you're toting 12 kids, and they all want your attention. Mom, I 
want to do And you're just like, okay, you know, like, how do you do it? I don't know. Patience and kindness in a world gone crazy, right? That's the first step toward evangelism. Check your heart. Check your attitude. Do you have a heart of hospitality? Right? So let me pray for us. Lord, what a challenge. What a challenge your life is to us. You were accused of being unholy because you ate with sinners and tax collectors, but you were being salt. You healed people and you cared for people and you fed people. You were being light. As you hung on the cross, you prayed for those who had just driven nails through your arms and feet. You prayed for their forgiveness. And Lord, you were interrupted all the time and you welcomed the people who interrupted you. So Lord, do your work in us So we are a people who loves our neighbor as ourselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.